this morning for Easter, we're going to be diving in to the Word of God, and we're going to be answering questions about the resurrection. We've been in a series at City Church called Hashtag Asking for a Friend, and our church family and others have been submitting questions on all kinds of topics. We've answered questions about relationships, uh, questions uh, about COVID-19, questions about the end times. We've answered a lot of different questions over the past few weeks, but today we get to answer what I think is the most important question of all. Why do we believe in all this stuff? Why do we believe in the resurrection? Why do we believe in Christianity? And I'm so excited to share with you my answer to these questions. These questions are, are questions that I've received for years and years, really ever since I got into ministry. Many of you know, but I started youth ministry as a youth pastor. I served in that ministry for a number of years. And oftentimes we'd have a student who would grow up uh, in the ministry, who'd be really involved and really connected, and then they'd go off to college and these questions would start to come up. Uh, they, they'd get into philosophy class or get into a world religions class, and these qu classes would start to create questions in their mind. How do we know that we're right? Pastor Troy, or most of the time they call me PT. How do we know that we're right? How do we know that Christianity is for real? Why do you believe in all of this. In fact, one time I had a young man ask me, he said, PT, you've put your whole life on this. Why do you trust in it so much? Why, why are you so confident that this is the truth? And the reality is that young man was right. I have put my whole life on this. I have uh, invested and gone all in in my 100% conviction that the Bible is true that Jesus is real, that he truly lived, he truly died, he truly rose from the dead, that there is eternity beyond this life. All of those things I believe with all my heart. And so I want to help you to understand this Easter Sunday, why this is such a big deal, why this is not just a, a fable, why we know this isn't just some, some good story that, that teaches us some spiritual truths, but it's actually historically accurate. And most importantly, it's the question, the story that, that everything else hinges on and revolves around. So happy Easter once again. Get ready. In fact, if you got your Bible, you can go ahead and open it to the book of Matthew chapter 27. I encourage you to grab a notepad and a pen. I believe some of this information may be valuable to you, whether you're a Christian and you're confident in your faith or you're joining us today because it's Easter Sunday and a friend asked you to watch it or posted a watch party and you're a little curious to see what this stuff is all about. Um, I believe that God's going to speak to you. Uh, I believe that that God has the ability to move even over cyberspace, uh, that his power and his presence has the ability to speak to us even through a, a TV screen. If you're casting to your TV today or a computer or a tablet or phone or whatever you happen to be watching our service on today, I believe that God wants to speak to you and meet you right where you're at. So if you would, would you pray with me very quickly? And then we're going to dive in. Father God, I thank you so much for the honor of speaking your word any day. God, but especially today, especially Easter Sunday, God, especially the, the most unique Easter Sunday in, in a very long time. God, what an honor to open up your word and speak to your people. So I pray today, God, that you would speak through me, that your Holy Spirit would, would anoint me, God, that these words would not be mine, but they'd be yours. And God, more importantly, I pray that, that you would impact those on the other side of these screens. God, wherever they are, whatever age they are, whatever they're their status is in their relationship with you. I pray that today would encourage them, today would, would enlighten them, God, that today would inform them, God, but today would bring people to a point where their, their faith in you increases. 
God, we pray that you would just build faith all throughout the area and whoever else is listening today. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, the, the question of the hour once again is, why do we believe in the resurrection? And, and the broader question, why do you believe in Christianity? I've had this submitted in, in a few different wordings. And so whether it's the big question of why do you believe in Christianity or the smaller question, why do you believe in the resurrection? I always bring them to the small question because I think it's the question that everything else hinges on. If, if we can believe that the son of God left heaven, came to earth, that he lived a sinless life for 33 years, that he died a criminal's death on a cross 2,000 years ago for you and for me, and that three days later, through the power of the Holy Spirit, his father raised him to life again, that, that he is alive today, if we can believe that, then I think the rest of the Bible is pretty easy to believe in. It's not hard for me to believe in a literal Adam and a literal Eve or in a literal whale that swallowed a man named Jonah that he lived in his stomach for three days. Those, those things are easy to believe in if I believe that there's a God who would leave heaven and come to earth, who would live a sinless life, who would die for my sins, and that that God actually has the power to raise someone from the dead, to bring them to new life. It's easy for me to trust the rest of Scripture if I can trust this. And so how do I trust it? Well, before we can get to the question of how do we know that Jesus raised from the dead, there, there's a couple other smaller questions that lead to that. The first one is this. How do we know that Jesus really lived? You'll hear some people say, man, Jesus, Jesus is just a fairy tale. He's just somebody who was made up. There really was no literal Jesus. Uh, and the fact is we can go beyond Scripture into the accounts of history and find a lot of evidence that Jesus really lived. In fact, one of the most profound and, and trusted historians of that era is a man named Josephus. Josephus was actually born shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But as he grew up, he went on to put together histories of the Roman Empire. And he had the opportunity to interview eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And so in the year AD 93, Josephus wrote a book titled The Testimonium Flavianum. The Testimonium Flavianum. And in that, he, he details for us things about the life of Jesus. He, he recognizes that Jesus was a real person, tells us where he lived and some of the things that he did. And if we had time this morning, I'd actually show you some of what he said, but for time's sake, we're not going to be able to share that with you. But I will share in the second question some things that he wrote. And the second question is this, if Jesus really lived, how do we know that Jesus really died? And when I say that he really died, obviously the assumption is if he's a human, he died. So how do we know that he died on a cross? How do we know that, that the Romans executed him at the request of the Jews? Uh, how do we know that this man, Jesus, this rabbi, this teacher, who is pretty recognized throughout uh, other faiths, throughout history, that man, this guy really did live. How do we know that he really died on a cross? And so this is what Josephus has to say. Josephus says uh, in the Testimonium Flavianum, he says, when Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. So Josephus 
gives us the historical account that Pontius Pilate, a historical figure in the Roman Empire, this governor of the region, that he actually condemned Jesus to die. So we see historical evidence. When I say historical, extra, what we would call extra biblical evidence. Obviously, the Bible gives us four gospel accounts, four eyewitness accounts that, man, this guy really lived. He really died. He really rose again. And for most of us, that's enough. But for some, they say, you know what? I'm going to need some more evidence to believe that somebody came back from the dead. Four eyewitness accounts from antiquity isn't enough. Although four eyewitness accounts of anything in antiquity would, would hold up in any history book. But when it comes to Jesus, some people want a, a higher burden of proof. And I actually think that's fair. I think if we're going to declare this person as the son of God, as the Messiah, as the king of the world, I think it's okay to say, hey, I want a little bit more evidence than I would to, to just know that somebody else lived or died. Uh, and so people want greater evidence. So here we have it beyond just the eyewitnesses of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have Josephus. Because today is Easter Sunday, I want us to turn to the book of Matthew chapter 27 and read an eyewitness account to the death of Jesus. I want us to see what the Bible says about what specifically happened to Christ. And we're going to start in verse 50. We're only going to read down through verse 54 right now. But here it is, the death of Jesus. It says in verse 50, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. So the, the book of John actually teaches us that nobody took Jesus's life. Jesus actually willingly laid it down. So Jesus was not murdered. Uh, Jesus was sacrificed. He laid down his life in my place and in yours. Verse 51 says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying the, the end of the separation between God and man. The curtain in the temple was there to say, hey, you can't come behind this curtain because this is where the presence of God dwells. And now that curtain was ripped so that God's presence doesn't dwell in a building anymore. It doesn't dwell in a physical place. Now God's presence dwells in you and in me as believers in Jesus. Verse 51 says, the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Amazing thing about the resurrection is it doesn't just tell us that Jesus rose from the dead. It tells us that we will rise from the dead as believers in him. Verse 53, they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city, and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely this man was the son of God. So Jesus' resurrection wasn't the only thing that demonstrated his significance as the son of God. It wasn't the only thing that demonstrated who he truly was. Even his death told the people around, wow, this guy was different. He was holy. He was set apart. He was unlike us. He was other. He was the son of God. So we can confidently say that Jesus lived and confidently say based on history that Jesus died. So the real question, the question that I've staked my entire life on and that you, if you're a believer in Jesus, you've staked your eternity on is this. How do we believe in the resurrection? How do we know that Jesus truly rose from the dead? Well, I want to give you a, a few reasons why you can place your trust 
in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why you can confidently believe that this is not just a fairy tale. This is not just a fable. This is not just another faith in the midst of many faiths. But that when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, that we can trust him and believe him and give him our lives. So let's dig into why do we believe that Jesus rose from the dead? We know that he lived and we know that he died. But how do we know that he rose? Well, let's continue in the book of Matthew with the biblical account. We'll start with the Bible and then we'll move beyond it as we go. So it's starting in verse 62 in Matthew chapter 27. It says, the next day, the one after preparation day, in other words, Sunday, Easter Sunday, as we call it now, resurrection day, as many would say. It says, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, notice they call Jesus the deceiver, the, the one who is actually the embodiment of truth, the way and the truth and the life, the one who is walking truth. They refer to him as the deceiver. It says, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples might come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. And so see how the enemy is doing everything he can to keep this thing secure. We want to make sure that nothing happens to Jesus, that he stays in the tomb as Dwindle already referenced for us. Man, just as the church is empty on Easter Sunday, so is the tomb. I'm bummed that the churches are empty on Easter Sunday. It's unlike any Easter I've ever been a part of. But man, I am so thrilled that the tomb is empty. That is so much more significant than a building, right? Because now God doesn't live in a building. He lives in us. And so uh, they, they ask, hey, let's make sure that we can secure the tomb. Let's make sure that this body doesn't just walk away and disappear on us. So in verse 65, Pilate says, take a guard. Go make the tomb as secure as you know, know how. So they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Moving into chapter 28. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, so I told you wrong. I said that this previous conversation was Easter Sunday. This was the day before Easter Sunday. I apologize. This was Saturday. Uh, so now we move on to Easter Sunday. Mary and Mary get up and they get ready to go to the tomb. Verse 2 says, there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then he got up quickly, or then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, that they will see me. So we see the, the biblical account, one of the biblical accounts, we have four of them, of the resurrection. In fact, we have five 
eyewitness accounts in Scripture to the resurrection. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels. But then we also have the Apostle Paul, who encountered the resurrected Lord a little bit later on. We'll talk about him uh, a little later on in our message. So the Bible declares that Jesus rose from the dead. There's no uh, question. In fact, in our series, we've said, hey, when the Bible speaks clearly, we're going to speak clearly. So there is no ambiguity here in Scripture. The Bible says Jesus rose from the dead. If we trust in the Bible, we believe that he rose from the dead. But obviously, many don't. So what do we do for those who don't trust in the Bible? Or how do we even know that the Bible is accurate in this? Well, again, we're going to turn to Josephus, this most significant Roman historian of his day. Here's what he has to say in the Testimonium Flavinium about the resurrection. It says, On the third day he appeared to them, restored to life. For the prophets of God had prophesied these and myriads of other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so-called after him, has still up to now not disappeared. So he's writing these words about 60 years after the resurrection of Christ. And he says, look, these, these people who've been named after him, they've been called Christians in his honor. They haven't disappeared. In fact, other historical uh, documents tell us they're just growing and growing and growing. The church is exploding even in the midst of great persecution, which we'll discuss in a little bit. Um, it's completely indisputed, even among the most skeptical of scholars, that the Apostle Paul is a real historical person. There's far too much evidence, far too many places that Paul really lived. And so while they'll dispute some of these other documents, even the most uh, secular of scholars acknowledges that Paul was a real person. In fact, they acknowledge that he wrote uh, in, in a certain time frames, and the book of 1 Corinthians, one of his letters, uh, is widely agreed upon that it was written somewhere between A.D. 53 and A.D. 57, just uh, 20, 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Here's what the Apostle Paul has to say about it in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. So he says this, he says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried... That he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter. Now, notice what Paul is about to do. He's about to start listing eyewitnesses. He appeared here. He appeared here. He appeared here. He starts going down the list of eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. He appeared to Peter uh, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. Did you catch that? He starts listing, and he goes over 500 people who he declares, hey, these, these are eyewitnesses to the resurrection. In fact, he calls some of them out by name. He says, you can go talk to them. You can check in with them. These people are still alive, and they're going to tell you the same thing that I'm telling you, that Jesus rose from the dead. This is Huge. So what else does the Bible have to say that, that gives us confidence that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, let's look at Jesus' relationships. Uh, first of all, we have his mother, Mary. Mary uh, is so huge in the story, man. God used her in such a magnificent and incredible way. She changed Jesus' diapers, right? She knew him as, as an infant. She knew him all the way up. And the Bible tells us that she visited him on the cross. Now, if the whole thing was a hoax, 
If Jesus wasn't really the son of God, which that's why he was being crucified. He was crucified for his claims that he was the son of God. If that wasn't true, Mary could have very easily said, nope, we made it all up. Wasn't a virgin. He wasn't visited by an angel. Nope, this is all, all just a story. We were trying to have some fun with it. We wanted to gain some notoriety, some fame, whatever it might be. But I'm not going to let my son die. How many of us would watch our child die to protect a lie? I can't think of many. Uh, certainly not die the death by crucifixion, this painful death, this awful death. I don't know any mother who would allow that to happen. If there was anything you could say that would save your child's life, you would say it unless you were protecting the truth, unless you knew that he truly was the son of God and you simply couldn't deny it. Let's move on to her brothers, James and Jude. Uh, we, we know he had a number of brothers. We don't know all of their names, but we know those two. And they did not believe in Jesus while he was alive. They didn't trust that he was the son of God, which uh, if you think about it, makes a lot of sense. You and I, if we had a sibling, had a brother who was supposed to be God and we were just a normal dude, we probably would be pretty skeptical about that as well. Even if he was perfect, even if he never sinned, even if he was full of love, it would still take a lot to convince me that either of my brothers were the son of God. Shout out to my brothers. I love you guys. It would take a lot for me to believe that you're God, just like it would take a lot for you to believe that your sibling was God. In fact, it would probably taking you see somebody coming back from the dead before you would believe that one of your siblings was the son of God. And that's what it took for James and it took for Jude. They were doubters. They didn't trust him. They didn't believe that he was the son of God while he was alive and doing ministry. But after he died... And they saw him with their own eyes. Remember, Paul specifically says he appeared to his brothers. After they saw Jesus risen again with their own eyes, after having seen him on the cross, having seen him take his last breath, all of a sudden, they couldn't deny it anymore. This guy was the son of God. In fact, they believed it so much that they invested their lives. They staked their lives on that truth as well. That everybody has to know that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that he lived, he died, and he rose again. Incredible, incredible testimony. We even see Jesus's enemy, a man named Saul, transformed as he encounters the risen Christ. He's persecuting Christians, trying to lock them up, advocating for the Jewish faith. And this man, this murderer, who is so against who Jesus was and what Jesus stood for, he meets Jesus himself. He encounters the risen Lord, and everything changes for him as well. So we see significant life change amongst people who would be the most unlikely to follow Jesus or believe in Jesus or proclaim Jesus. His mother, his brothers, and even his enemy. That's some biblical evidence. But what about beyond the Bible? We don't People who don't trust in the Bible, what, what reason would they have to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, well, let's look at the change in the disciples. All right, we're going to use some Bible for this, but we'll go beyond it. Peter goes from, from this coward who we see even on the, on the day that Jesus is arrested, as he's going to be taken to the cross, Jesus deny, excuse me, Peter denies Jesus three times. Nope, I don't know him. I've never been with him. I don't know what you're talking about. He denies Jesus three times. 
And yet after encountering the risen Lord, Peter is filled with boldness. He goes throughout the Roman Empire proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is and ends up actually dying for his faith. He's actually crucified upside down. They're going to crucify him. They're going to hang him on a cross just like they did with Jesus. And Peter says, no, I'm not worthy to die the same death that my Lord did. You crucify me upside down. And so Peter goes, goes from this wimp, from this coward, from this person who doesn't even want people to know he knows Jesus to one who's willing to die to proclaim the truth of who Jesus is. Why? Because he encountered the risen Lord. And we see this similar transformation amongst many of the disciples. Uh, not all of them were as, as afraid as Peter was. They weren't denying Jesus. In fact, they were, some of them were even more afraid. They were out hiding. Uh, but they didn't necessarily have the, the denial that Peter had, but all of them were afraid to be associated with Jesus as Jesus is arrested. And yet 10 out of the 12 of them end up dying to tell people about Jesus. The only exceptions were Judas, who killed himself because he's the one who betrayed Jesus, and then John. And John didn't die because or it was not martyred, it was the word that we use for it, for someone who died telling people about Jesus. He wasn't martyred, not because they didn't try, but just because they couldn't kill him. Uh, they actually threw him in a vat of burning oil, history tells us. It's not in the Bible. Uh, the story about Peter's crucifixion is not in the Bible either. These are other historical accounts. Uh, they threw John in a vat of burning oil, and he wouldn't die. And so since they couldn't kill him, they actually banished him to a penal island, an island for, for criminals, called Patmos. And it was on the island of Patmos that John received the revelation of Jesus Christ. We call the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible. And so we, we see this transformation where these men who, who are scattered, who are terrified upon the arrest of Jesus, end up boldly proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, saying, I don't care if you're even going to kill me. If we walk through church history, we find horrible, horrible accounts of the ways that these people died, not just the disciples, but other early followers of Jesus. They were drawn and quartered. That means that they were tied on each limb and each limb was then tied to a different horse. And, and then they would whip the backs of the horses and the horses would run as fast as they can in opposite directions. And it would actually rip the limbs off of these Christians' bodies and they would bleed to death right there in the Roman Colosseum as, as others watched. Nero, the most cruel emperor, uh, the one who persecuted the church most boldly, most, most strongly after about the year 80, 70, so about 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus, Nero would take Christians and he would cover them in oil uh, and, and set them ablaze and he would use them as torches to light up his garden. There, there were so many other accounts of awful ways that they were martyred. We know that James, uh, the brother of John, he was the first disciple martyred. He had his head cut off. Stephen, one of the members of the early church who, who was chosen as one of the first deacons, uh, he was stoned to death. And as he's stoned to death, he's actually the very first martyr. He sees this revelation of heaven, uh, sees Jesus at the right hand of God, and he says the same things that Jesus said. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So time and time and time again, we see these people who, who are willing to die for the truth that Jesus rose from the dead. Why? 
If it was just a lie, if it was just something that was manufactured, if it was just something that they created, why would anyone be willing to die for that? Can you think of a lie that you'd be willing to die to keep covered up? Not just you, but, but hundreds of others, right? We have hundreds of eyewitness accounts. It would only take one of them to come forward and say, nope, we made the whole thing up. Nope, we were joking. Uh, and certainly if you were threatened with, with death, with excruciating death, a torturous death, you wouldn't die to protect the lie. You would say, nope, wasn't me. Nope, we didn't see Jesus. Nope, that was, we, we stole the body, we hid the body. Whatever else happened, you'd, you'd tell the truth. The only reason you would die in that situation is if you believed it from the very bottom of your heart. And not only did the, the eyewitnesses believe it, but they believed it so strongly that it caused others around them to believe it. They watched the way these people died. They watched the way these men and women laid down their lives to proclaim the truth of the resurrection. And they said, you know what? This thing's real. This thing's true. And people start coming to Jesus in droves. People start, uh, start becoming Christians all over the place. And the early church explodes in the midst of grave, grave persecution. In fact, one of the early church fathers said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And in other words, everywhere that the, that the blood fell, that, that men and women laid down their lives to say, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he rose from the dead. Everywhere that that blood fell, other believers grew up. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So we look at the disciples and we see this circumstantial evidence. We look to history and we see these accounts of the church exploding all over the place in the midst of great persecution. We see accounts of thousands upon thousands of Christians who have their lives taken by the Roman Empire uh, in the first 300 years after Jesus until the Emperor Constantine actually converts to Christianity himself and then does the, the awful thing. He says, hey, now everybody has to convert to Christianity. And all of a sudden, Christianity loses a lot of its power because instead of people converting because they've, they've recognized the reality of Jesus, now they're converting because it's the thing to do. It's the popular thing. In fact, it was the required thing. It was the legal thing to follow Jesus. And so the, the church, after about AD 300, started to lose some of its potency, started to lose some of its sincerity. Uh, that's the danger of the church being mixed in with political power. But the first 300 years as the church was persecuted, as the church was under the thumb of the Roman Empire, it exploded greatly. And there was a true, true purity of the faith. Now, those are reasons why I believe in the resurrection. But can I tell you another one? Uh, apart from history, uh, apart from reason, apart from simple biblical evidence is this. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus because of what God's done in my life. Because of my personal experience has lined up with this thing right here. Um, I've seen people healed. I've seen God do miracles. I've seen demons cast out of people. I've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a supernatural experience where God gave me a prayer language, a direct line to him. That I can speak to him anytime that I want. All of those things lining up with what I see in the word of God. Now personal experience alone isn't enough. Because there's people of all kinds of faiths and all kinds of beliefs that, that will back it up and say, hey, well, I believe because this happened to me. Personal experience isn't enough on its own. But on top of the biblical evidence, on top of the historical evidence, on top of simple reason, why else would the church have exploded from an insignificant group of people? 
in an insignificant part of the world to become what is universally acclaimed. Jesus Christ is the most important person who ever lived. Man, whether you believe in Jesus or not, every historian will say that this man and this movement called Christianity, this book called the Bible, is the most significant book ever written. It's had a greater impact on people than anything else. Why? Simply because it's true. Simply because God is real. Jesus truly lived. He really died. And he truly was risen again and is alive today. And here's his promise for you, church, that if you would believe in him, if you would trust in him for eternal life, that if you would make him Lord of your life, that he's going to send his Holy Spirit to live in you. He's going to forgive you of your sins if you repent from them. He's going to give you a place in eternity with him and his father. He's going to rescue you and save you. You see, Jesus died not because he was persecuted by the Jews, not because the Romans crucified him. Jesus died. Because we needed a sacrifice. Jesus died because we were separated from God. Because sin had caused this chasm between God and us that none of us could cross. And so God knew there was no way for us to get from ourselves to him. And so he chose to cross the gap himself. He sent his only son, part of the Trinity, part of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we live, to come in and experience life as a human, but to conquer sin instead of giving in to sin and temptation the way that Adam did, the way that every one of us has other than Jesus. Jesus came and he experienced temptation the same way that we do, but he overcame. He, he found victory over sin. And then on the cross, he found victory over death. The enemy thought he had won. Satan thought he had shut Jesus down for good. But the very thing he did, thinking he was bringing victory to himself, is the thing that saved every one of us. The death of Jesus Christ, which led to his resurrection. And so now, if we believe on him, if we call on him as our Lord, we receive that salvation. And the amazing thing, as I said earlier, is the resurrection of Jesus isn't just for him, it's now for us. He has promised that we would receive the resurrection, that, that we may physically die but spiritually, we will live if we trust in him as Lord of our lives. Just a moment, I'm going to lead a prayer inviting those who don't know Jesus to make him Lord of their lives. I don't know where you're watching from today. I don't know if you're even watching on Easter Sunday. Maybe you're watching this later on. But the reality is that all of us have to make a decision to follow Jesus for ourselves. We're not a Christian because our family was Christians. We're not a Christian because we go to church or even watch a live stream of a church. We're not even a Christian because we have the right beliefs. We're a Christian because we've given Jesus our life, that we've chosen to follow him, that he is the one that we've made Lord in our life. And if you're willing to do that, the Bible says that if you'll confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, according to Romans 10, 9, you'll be saved. Those two things. You got to believe in your heart, the resurrection, what we just talked about. That this thing truly happened. You may not understand all the science behind it or all, all the history behind it. But deep down in your heart, there's something that says, yes. Yes, this happened. Yes, this is the truth. Yes, this is real. And yes, I need Jesus in my life. If you're willing to do that and, and invite him in to be your Lord. He says, you're going to be my king. I'm going to follow you. It doesn't mean you're going to make do everything right from this point forward. But it does say, Jesus, I'm choosing to follow you. If you're willing to be his follower, wherever he leads, 
you're willing to give him your life right now, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. So right now, wherever you're at, if you would, bow your head and close your eyes. And if that's you, if you need to give your life to Jesus today with nobody looking around in your room, would you just slip up your hand and say, I need Jesus. I'm a sinner. I'm far from God. My life hasn't gone the way I want it to. And I know Jesus rose from the dead. I know that he died for me. And that God brought him back to life. And I'm ready to make him king of my life. I'm ready to make him my Lord. If that's you right where you're at, I'm going to lead you in this prayer. If you're a Christian right where you're at, I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer out loud as a show of support for those who are watching. Even if you're by yourself, would you pray this out loud just as a statement of faith? Man, that the church is coming together in support of those who are making this decision today. Let's pray this, church. Say, Father God, 